So we're here to investigate letting go. And as was in the flyer, Ajahn Chah's pretty famous quote now, if you let go a little, you get a little peace. If you let go a lot, you get a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you'll have complete peace. So we can distill the whole teaching down to complete peace. Nibbana comes from complete letting go, to be able to let go. And we can know that, of course, but that doesn't mean we can do it. There's so many different challenging situations in human life. There are so many things that are difficult to hold and then let go of. There's a story of the Buddha's son, Rahula. I know you may, you may know that, of course, the Buddha was married and he had a son. He left the home life around the time his son was born and um, then his son came to join him in the monastic life later on. And he was still quite young, I think around seven years old. And when Rahula was about 18, he was following the Buddha, his father, on alms round. So alms, you know, going out to the village with your alms bowl, which is something we still do sometimes. Some monastics in the Theravada tradition do it every day, but others of us um, may not do it every day. But still, this was something that that's the way the monks lived in that time, the monks and nuns, how they got their food most of the time. And so it was just the Buddha and Rahula, and Rahula was following his, his father, and he was 18 years old, you know, starting to really become a young man, a man. And he was looking at what a fine figure of a man his father was, and he thought, I look like him. And then the Buddha turned around and he said, Rahula, any form whatsoever that is past, future, or present, internal or external, blatant or subtle, common or sublime, far or near, every form is to be seen as it actually is with right discernment. This is not mine. This is not myself. This is not what I am. He caught him. He knew what he was thinking. And then Rahula said, Blessed One, Sublime One, just form. And the Buddha said, Form Rahula and feeling and perception and mental formations and consciousness. So of course right there we have what's called in Pali the five khandas, 
what's called in English the five aggregates, these heaps that the Buddha made to try to catch everything that we cling to. The five aggregates of clinging. So when we're holding on to something, we can actually look which pile does it come from. And it may not be completely clear because these piles aren't exactly discrete. Some things might be in, you know, one and one kind of. The Buddha said you can't really completely separate the categories, and that's not the point. But the point is that it's meant to cover the whole range of those things that we cling to that aren't actually me or mine. We don't actually own them. It's not who we are. It's not what is ours. Long time ago, before I even was really exposed to Buddhism, I was very earnest in pursuing a spiritual path and really wanted to understand better what this life is about. And I had a friend who was a devotee of a guru from India. And this guru would come to America from time to time and his friend invited me and another friend of mine to visit to come to a session where the guru would be meeting with people. And I didn't have exposure to Eastern traditions at all at that point. And he said, dress modestly and bring a gift of some kind and come. So we did. We, we, we went to a house where the, the guru was going to be coming to. And my life was pretty busy and I um, was almost ready to leave when I thought, what can I bring for a gift? And I had some flowers out in the garden. I, I cut them and I brought a bouquet of flowers. And so we are at this house and the guru was supposed to come at a certain time and he didn't come. And he didn't come and he didn't come. And in the meantime, as people were arriving, they had, you know, all kinds of like big bouquets of roses and here's my little bouquet of flowers and it's kind of wilting right now and I'm thinking, oh, oh well. <laughs> and it took a long time before the guru arrived and then when he did and everybody was sitting, anticipating what he would say, he was, um, you know, the kind of teacher who really like, puts people on the hot seat no matter what they say and yells at them. <laughs> Just never been a style I've been particularly warm to. <laughs> and um, there, there came a point when it was time to give our gifts to him, all of everybody. And my flowers by this time were like <laughs> terrible. And my friend had brought some fruit, and so she offered the fruit. And when she did, she said, This is organic fruit, and I, you know, whatever. And I thought, Oh, I. I don't know, I wasn't too conscious of this, but I thought, well, maybe I can make this look a little better by telling him that I grew, grew the Caesar flowers from my garden. And he said, you are a thief. 
And I just, it was, it was great in a way because I didn't get upset. I just got quiet. And I thought, I just have to like empty myself here and try to understand what this teaching is. And he repeated again, what did you bring me? And I said, I brought my open heart to learn. Because that's what was inside. And he said, you and I have a connection. And I thought, (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't that interested, but I went home and I really thought about it. Because, because he said something more. He said, the only reason you think that it's your garden is because you bought it from somebody who thought it was their garden. And I knew that was true. And the days and the weeks that followed, I was reflecting on, what do I really own? And we had some massive oak trees on our our lot in town, and I knew I didn't own them, regardless of the fact that we had a deed. <laughs> we can't own that. And I knew I, I had two children, and I knew that I didn't own them, even though the language is my children, my daughter, my son. But I knew I didn't own them. They weren't mine. I started to look at all these possessions that I had, and I thought, you know, why do I have all this stuff? <laughs> I can't even take care of it all. I don't use it, and I decided if I don't use it and I don't love it, I'm getting rid of it. So I had a garage sale, and vowed I would never do that again. <laughs> and then whenever I thought I wanted something, I'd think, how long is it going to be before I have to have another garage sale? <laughs> but anyway, you kind of get the idea. It was one of my first sort of opportunities to really look at you know, something other than, not that I, I don't think I was um, particularly materialistic in any case, but to really look at that question of what is, what is mine? What is mine? And, and I decided, you know, I think that these things are in my possession for me to use and to care for. And if I don't do that, then let them go. And that letting go of even the smallest things helps to prepare us to start letting go of the bigger things. And I knew that I had a lot of work to do. One of the things that happened long before I became a nun, but after I had become very involved in Buddhism, so what happened there is my son went to Thailand and became a monk. And he was 24, he had finished college, and he became a monk in uh, Wat Panama Cha, which is Ajahn Cha's international monastery in Thailand. And I thought, well, I'm really interested in finding out what this is about, and I want to know that he's okay and make sure that, you know, he's with good people and all of that. So I went to visit, and I stayed for a month, 
And it was, it was the most amazing thing for me because it was the first time I moved with people who didn't kill everything that bothered them, you know, who didn't harm, they went way out of the way to not harm living beings. And it was the first time um, being around people who lived that simply. Something that I had been saying I wanted to do to live more simply. And buying that magazine, Real Simple, wasn't getting the job done. You know, and, and to really start to see how the Buddha talked about the four things that we need, this was a real eye-opener for me. You know, it's like we just, all we need, we need sufficient food, clothing, housing, and medical support. And then when he... You know, when the Buddha lays this out for the monastics, it's really simple. The food is what people will put in your alms bowl. The clothing are the rags that you find that you can sew together to make robes. The housing, at the very least, is the root of the tree. And the medicine, at the very least, is fermented cow's milk. And everything after that is gravy. <laughs> so, just living with these things in mind and being grateful for everything that comes your way. And there's a chant that we're, we do when we eat, and there's a chant that we, you know, we do when we when we work with our robes, when we use our, our our clothes. And it's it's like, you know, really understanding what this stuff is for and reflecting on this helps a lot to work with that very sort of material side of life. But then, of course, letting go has so much more involved in it. So I, I'd go to visit my son. I went frequently and stayed in different monasteries in Thailand and really gained so much from that. And I also would go frequently to a Baikiri Buddhist monastery, which is um, in Northern California. And the abbot there, Ajahn was very patient with me as I asked him many questions and I would have my worries about my son. Um, now he's gone into some remote part of Thailand in the jungles where, you know, a third of the monks have gotten malaria and I just, you know. <laughs> and he said, look, San Jose is more dangerous. <laughs> okay. And just, just working with you know, of course, every one of us has a tremendous amount to work with with regard to our fears, our worries, our desires, our disappointments. And one of the things that happened one night when I was, I came to the monastery to come for the Dharma talk, and one of the neighbors right there living next to the monastery I think it was a point where she had just passed away. And Ajahn told the story that this neighbor who was married, she had been acting in a local play and she couldn't finish the run of the play and she went to the doctor and they did a surgery and they found that she was full of cancer. And there wasn't any treatment that they could give her. And he went to the hospital to visit her, and 
she said, I know I'm going to die soon, and I know I might not even be able to go back home, but I am so grateful. And he said, I'm not worried about you. And I listened to that and I thought, that's what I want. I want to, I want to let go like that. I want to be that ready. And I really wanted to start to look at what are the things that I need to do to prepare and to be able to really let go. So part of that is meditation, because the more we can cultivate our concentration, the more our nerve endings get kind of wrapped in insulation. <laughs> things bother us less, and things are less necessary, not just things, but the body the feelings, the perceptions, the mental activity, anything that we would say is me or mine or anything that's happening that isn't going the way we want it to go. There's more space in the heart if that meditation is solid and consistent. And then, of course, mindfulness. Being able to practice again and again and again and being with, being present with the suffering that comes from not getting what we want, losing what we love, being associated with what we don't like, aging, sickness, that loss of all kinds. And the investigation into the true nature of all of those things, the true nature of the five aggregates, the true nature of the human body or the, any body, the true nature of what I believe about myself, who I think I am. What is the truth about that? One of the stories I like very much um, I don't know if you heard of a Sri Lankan monk named Bhante Gunaratana. He's getting quite old now. And he, he teaches the nuns once a month over Skype. Very clued in. <laughs> <laughs> and he told us that when he was having this heart surgery a couple of years ago, which I think was probably pretty serious, the doctors, you know, how they come in before the surgery and talk to you. And he said the four different doctors came in to talk to him. And with each one of them, he had the chance to say, now, as a monk, I've been reflecting on death every night since I was 22 years old. Every night, reflecting on death. And I want you to know that if, if I don't make it through this surgery, I don't want you to feel bad. It's okay. Don't feel bad. And you got a chance to say that to each of them. And it's like, here again, you know, 
Can I make myself ready and live lightly enough with the whole parade of the coming and going of everything in this life? To be that gracious and prepared and ready and at ease. You would be at ease. Then um, last year, a good friend of mine who is also a Bhikkhuni, she was born and raised in the same state I grew up in, in Indiana. She lived on a farm. She was born the same year I was. And we got ordained together as Bhikkhunis in Los Angeles. Now, what are the chances? <laughs> They're just not growing that many Bhikkhunis in Indiana, I can tell you. <laughs> and, we were, and we were good friends. We would confess with each other. Um, she lived down in um, a monastery in Southern California, Mahapa Japadi Monastery, and I live in Mountain View, California, so we're quite, quite far apart physically, but then we do this over the phone. When you talk about the rules together and you share, you know, like, well, that I didn't quite do that the way I'd like to do it, you know, or something, you know, some circumstance comes up and some rule isn't quite kept the way you like, and you talk that through with, with another nun. And so you get to know each other well, and I really appreciated her integrity and her commitment to the practice. And she had plans to go to Sri Lanka for the rains retreat, which is three months in the summer, July to October. She's got to go to Sri Lanka and spend the rains in Sri Lanka, and, and she was getting close to leaving, but she had some kind of respiratory thing going on, and she, you know, you know already this isn't going to end brightly, <laughs> but it depends on your point of view. <laughs> she went to the doctor, and she had fourth stage lung cancer, and. It was really interesting because we would talk really often, like every couple of days for some stretches, and she was so able to be present with what was happening at the moment, like, how do you feel? Well, I feel good today. They gave me some medication, that horrible pain in my chest is gone. You know, I'm, I'm feeling okay. Another day it's like, I'm feeling miserable growing up and whatever, you know. And she refused um, any kind of chemotherapy because she didn't feel like that was really going to help. And she just had tremendous peace, it seemed like, around the whole thing. Just to be able to turn like that. Now it's different. Now I'm doing this. This is my practice now. And I find that that way of thinking, what's my practice now? Now my practice is being with this grief. Or now my practice is being with this, this change. I knew that this could change. I just didn't think it would change so fast. Or I knew that this would change someday. There was a point, obviously before I became a nun, where my husband told me one day that he didn't want to be married anymore. 
And it was a complete surprise. Totally came out of left field for me. And when I was present with that pain, and it was, you know, the waves of emotion, and I was saying, I am suffering because I thought this was more permanent than that. <laughs> I knew it wasn't permanent, but I thought it was more permanent than that. <laughs> and that was an interesting time for me because I was going to be leaving because in the beginning it was his house. And I didn't have a job at that time and I didn't have a place I was going to go to live. And I would kind of walk on the stairs that I had walked on so many times before and I would say, well, I'm not going to be doing this anymore. And I'd pick something up and I'd say, well, I'm not going to be using this anymore. And just that kind of using this using this opportunity to really bring home the impermanence of the situations, of the material things, of how things feel, noticing that changes all the time, the impermanence of everything. And really, it's like, okay, now what? Now there's this gaping hole that used to be my life, what am I going to do with that? And i got to say, it was the sweetest divorce you could ever imagine. I mean, we, we actually were going to go away for our anniversary, and we went away anyway, and we were talking about, you know, like, what, what is it that you want out of life? And I knew pretty quick that I wanted to be a nun. And... It turned out to be the greatest thing. And of course, that's the other thing. We never know. This thing that looks like the worst thing ever can turn out to be the greatest thing ever, and then you still don't know. <laughs> right? But that's part of it. It's like, can I be with these massive changes? Can I be with the little tiny changes? Can I let it go? Can I trust something deeper? Have I been able to, or how can I put more bricks in the foundation of that security that goes beyond this existence? The Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. How do I define those? How do I find refuge in that? And when I was when I was practicing a lot, but I wasn't yet Buddhist. I was meditating a lot, and I was in a spiritual community that was very supportive. And, I, and like I said, this con- concentration meditation is incredibly valuable for for being able to practice letting go. And it was about nine o'clock at night, and I got a phone call that my daughter had been in a car accident. And she, she was maybe 22 at that time. And the person who talked to me said, it was her, one of her roommates, and, and said that she was, she was conscious. They were rushing her to the hospital. It was going to take my husband and I about 45 minutes at least to get there. And the whole way, 
I was thinking, this is what the practice is for. This is what the practice is for. And I had this feeling, I didn't have any idea what I would find when I got there. Would she be alive or not? I wondered if she would be paralyzed. I had the feeling that it was something like that, or it could be. But this is what the practice is for, staying present with all of that feeling. And when I got there, even though it was Stanford Hospital, she was still on the board that they took her out of the accident with, and they had not treated her yet. So you can imagine the anger that came up. But she was alive, and just trying to be calm, be present, be assertive, the whole, the whole thing, right? And I kept thinking, okay, well, even before I got there, if she's, what is my job now? If she's paralyzed, my life would be different. That would be, if my job would be to help her. If she's passed away, then I have a different job, a job of supporting her as she moves on. What's my job now? And when I got there, my job was to advocate. My job was to take care of her. And she had, her back was broken, and she's wasted. And gratefully, the bones had not moved out of place. There wasn't a damage to her spinal cord, so she did not, she did not become paralyzed. But it's like the whole step, every step is like, what's my job now? And it, it's not like you don't feel. You feel it all. But feeling, as we're going to talk about more tomorrow night, it's just feeling. Comes, it goes. We use it. We learn from it. And let it go. And... By the way, she's fine. She still has back pain, but she's fine. And even if she weren't, I mean, there's the whole range, right? And we all experience it. A sudden death, a major illness. I have friends whose house burned down completely to the ground while they were at the beach. And they, were, they had one of those big homes in the Oakland Hills. This was years ago when the Oakland fires. And one of them's a professor at Berkeley, and the other one is a writer. They've told me a number of times that that was such a blessing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the whole house went. And Peter told me that that's when he really started writing before. Yeah, when all his books burned. That's when he really started writing. <laughs> so before that, I was just busy looking things up. <laughs> never know. And it's not even like you hold out the hope that it's going to turn out well. It's just going to be what it is. And it's like this body, it is what it is. It's impermanent. And it's not very beautiful in many ways. And there are ways we can practice with it that actually help us Learn the 
habit of letting go. And that's really what I want to try to encourage this week, that we start to develop the habit of letting go. And it involves all aspects of those five aggregates, because sometimes we can hold the perception that I should cling, because that means I care, or I have the right. We have the right to suffer. And someone in my life who says, do I have the right to be angry? I'm like, that's your choice. <laughs> it's, like, it's not going to be very nice. Um, and to realize that we do have choices. The choices around how we're going to be with this experience we're having. And we have a lot more we have a lot more power than we think. The mind, a trained mind, is incredibly powerful. An untrained mind is a lot of trouble, the Buddha said. <laughs> and how do we train the mind so that it meets every experience in life from a place of Really being present with, not pulling away, hiding away, running away, being present with, being able to hold what's there, being able to allow change, being able to orient the mind in a way that makes it possible for us to be at peace at some level, being happy, anything. And this is so completely possible. And it takes real persistence. And it takes being willing to be with the way it is, regardless of how we think things should be. Because you know, we can be practicing for a long time. We can think, I shouldn't be feeling this way, or I shouldn't be thinking this way. I should be beyond this. But if we're not, we're not. It's okay. It's like, if I can be with the way things actually are, then I have a chance to do something that's actually beneficial, the most beneficial for myself and for others. And I really appreciate some of the stories from the time of the Buddha. And this one you've probably heard, but most people I don't think get to hear or read the details, the backstory that helps make it make sense. So you probably heard the story of the woman who came to the Buddha with a dead child in her arms and he told him to go get some mustard seeds, right? This was Kisa Gotami, and Kisa means haggard. So haggard Gotami. She wasn't a very attractive girl. And she came from a poor family, so she didn't have great prospects of marrying well. But there was a son of a merchant who 
who saw her and liked her and wanted her, wanted to marry her. Because he, he realized that she had a really good heart. But his family didn't accept her. And they were pretty mean to her. And then her husband was always kind of in the middle of it, you know, all that kind of thing where the in-laws don't get along with the, you know, that was hard. But then she gave birth to a son, and suddenly they accepted her and they treated her well, and and she adored this little boy. I mean, mothers do anyway, but it was more because this child just, you know, changed her life having this child. So she doted on him and so attached. Him so much, and um, when he got to the point where he was just walking, he got sick and he died within two days. And she couldn't handle it. And she thought, My in laws are going to blame me. They're going to say, I don't have the goodness, the karma to have a son. It's gonna, you know, it's gonna be horrible again, and her mind went into this can't be true. He's not dead. I've gotta find, I've gotta find a way. And so that's what brought her to be going around town with this dead child in her arms, saying, "Can you please give me some medicine for my child?" And people said, "Look, there's no medicine that's gonna help him. He's dead." And she. Didn't want to hear that, so she go to the next person. And then, in in the backstory, they say that people got cruel about it. Told so she was crazy. But there was this man who said, "The Buddha is over there, and Jesus Grove. Go to him; he'll know what to do." So she went right away to the Buddha. And they say that when the Buddha said to her. I can help you, I know of something that can help you, but you have to get, you have to get this. She's like, what, what? And all the people, they say mustard seeds. And the, and the, and the disciples and the people are all aware of like, what? <laughs> he said, go, go get mustard seeds, but I, I want you to get them from a house where no one has died. So she's carrying the baby. She goes to the house, and you know how it is. If you go to a house, I mean, she she'd ask for mustard seeds and say, "Sure," and then she'd say, "But wait, has anybody died here?" Well, you don't just get a yes or no. They're gonna tell you the whole story. So she went through a whole a whole day hearing the stories, and one man said to her, "The dead are more numerous than the living." Through that process, she got it. She went to the cemetery and she buried the baby. And then she went back to the Buddha. And he said to her, did you bring the mustard seeds? She says, I'm done, venerable sir, with mustard seeds. Only grant me a refuge. And he says, 
When a person's mind is deeply attached, obsessed with sons and cattle, death grabs them and carries them away as a flood does a sleeping village. And because of what she had gone through that day, hearing this, opened her mind. And she entered the stream right there. She saw that everything that arises ceases. And she became a nun. And then she was practicing and studying. And one day, she watched the oil lamp sputter. And it occurred to her that this restless hissing of the flames were like the ups and downs of life and death. And the Blessed One, the Buddha, he knew that she was ready for full awakening. And he went to her and he said, though one should live a hundred years not seeing the deathless state, Yet better it is to live for a single day, seeing the deathless state. And when she heard that, all the feathers dropped, and she became enlightened. Then she, she wrote the verses during the Tarikatha, To the world the sage has praised the value of noble friendship. By resorting to noble friends, even a fool becomes wise. One should resort to worthy people, for thus one's wisdom ever grows. By resorting to worthy people, one is free from all suffering. One should know the Four Noble Truths, suffering and its origination, then the cessation of suffering and the Noble Eightfold Path. I really like these stories of when people come with so much suffering to the Buddha because he always opens the perspective. He opens up the perspective so we see the bigger picture. Because it's in the little picture that we do the most suffering. It's like when my husband didn't want to be married anymore, if I had stayed focused on how this wasn't what I wanted to have happen with my life at that stage, and da 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 da. The suffering would have been so much greater, but to open it up to say, okay, there's this big space. What do I want to create there? That this stuff happens every day to people. Father died very suddenly, and at that time I hadn't, I wouldn't prepared whatsoever. And that was really what made me want to seek the spiritual path. I wanted to understand what happens when we die. And over time and with work, learning and understanding more, I can see 
I think how that time, even though it seemed like a long time, was actually so beneficial. It's actually what threw my son into the spiritual path and he became a monk. It's actually changed my mother's life in a positive way and I think for my father that he was done. But regardless of what my perceptions are around it, the reality is now, that was in 1994, now I don't feel the same way about his death. Is that because all the time heals the wounds? Sure. Well, what would it be like if I could be right at that point at the time it happened? There's nothing that says that there are stages of misery that we have to go through. That's part of our conditioning. We can change that. It doesn't mean that we have to go through those stages. It's just that we can really start to cultivate, like Bhante Gunaratana reflecting on death every night since he's 22. We can really cultivate. It's not just the capacity to be with trauma or to be with change. It's really the seeing through to what's the true nature of things in a way that we have unquenchable buoyancy, a resilience that's natural. And so this is, this is what I want to encourage, not just for this week, but for the rest of our lives, that we, that we start to gather the tools and start to use them in a way that strengthens us, regardless of where we are, regardless of the stage, regardless of what we're working with. Because the Four Noble Truths, the Noble and Full Path, the tools of mindfulness and concentration, the tools of investigation, they're the same, regardless of what the material is. And so this is what I want to encourage. And I want to start with working with the body and working with we can work with material possessions, you know, and then we'll have a fire to the house, what would I miss? What would I cling to? What would I regret? We start the therapy on too. If we flooded out tonight, you know, what would that be like? But we can also go to what would it be like if I died tonight? How would that go for the family? How would it go for us? There was with Venerable Amalio on retreat at Spirit Rock in April. And I would really recommend if you get a chance to sit with him on retreat, go for it. It was, it was amazing. And he was teaching the Sakyatana Sutta, the Foundations of Mindfulness. And I want to lead you through the part of the meditation that he gave around the body tonight and tomorrow and use that for reflection for, that, for our first full day together. And it's the kind of thing where we can use this reflection on the body to begin to see not just how to let go, but what we're really letting go of. What are we really clinging to? We're clinging to this process that's constantly changing. And I think what we'll do is we'll just 
body into account, every aspect of it. And we'll start from the top of the head and just notice skin and let the awareness slowly come down the face under the eyes and nose and just being aware of skin. And also down the back of the head. The ears. The mouth. Jaw. The neck. Just noticing the skin. And the shoulders. Inside the body. 
I notice the flesh of the feet. You can see it in your mind's eye. Noticing the flesh of the lower legs. And the flesh in the thighs. And then as we move into the body, into the torso, you notice the flesh of all the different kinds. But it's just flesh. Coming up through the body. The flesh. Coming up to where the shoulders are. And then bringing the attention to the hands and noticing the flesh in the hands. And in the lower arms. And in the upper arms. The flesh in the shoulders. And the neck. And the flesh in the head. And now we're at the top of the head. I'm going to go down through the body, noticing the bones. We start with the skull. And the jaw. And the bones in the neck. And the shoulders. Bones in the upper arms, the lower arms, bones in the hands, and we come back to the shoulders and we notice the bones of the spine, the back, and the ribs. Coming down through the body, pelvis, the hips, bones in the upper legs, and the lower legs, and the feet. These are just the parts, the anatomical parts of the body. We carry that with us, and it's just like this. Nothing so beautiful, particularly not so attractive. second part to this meditation is to see the body in context of the four elements. 
Starting at the top of the head, you notice the water element. The water element is what makes the flesh soft. And the water element of the flesh of the head Start the bottom of your feet, noticing the fire element. 
feeling the warmth of the feet, the lower legs, warmth on the skin is the easiest place to feel. And the upper legs. The fire element on the skin of the abdomen, hips. Fire element is also digestion. Fire element moving up the torso, up the body. We have the warmth, the fire element of the shoulders and the hands. The warmth on the skin of the hands. And the lower arms and the upper arms. The shoulders and the warmth and the fire of the neck. And then the head. Fire element internally and fire element externally are exactly the same. And now at the top of the head, we'll go down through the body, noticing the air element. down to the lower body, the upper legs, the lower legs and feet. Air element internally, air element externally, the same. We breathe in the air. Exchange going on all the time. Bringing our attention and focusing on our breath is the third and final part of this meditation. Really being fully present with each in-breath and each out-breath. And as we breathe in, calling to mind that this, this in-breath 
might be the last song. We never know. They say that. There will be one, at least the last one. It could be this one. And if it's not this one, it's one closer to death. One breath closer to death. And when we exhale, focus on letting go. And if there's any anxiety arising, considering that this might be the last in breath, and bring the focus to the outside, focusing on letting go. With every exhalation, letting go. But if we aren't taking it seriously, if we can't really imagine that this may be the last in breath. And bring our attention to the in-breath. And raise the volume, raise the intensity, raise the urgency of practice. To really take it in. Someday this body will die. This is natural. There's nothing wrong with that. This isn't our refuge. It's not even ours. We start to lose this idea of some solid self that's really just elements, that's really just process. Reflecting on the last Reflecting on letting go. So continue practicing this way until
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.